All right, good morning again. If you're watching online, we'd like to welcome you as well. Glad you could be here on this fine Sunday morning. It is a pleasure and a privilege to be with you today. Would you join me in turning to Psalm 36 if you have a Bible? Psalm 36, if you have a a device with a Bible app on it, you can navigate your way over. A regular old analog Bible, it'll be in the middle there. Psalm 36, it's a beautiful text. I think it has some really wonderful insights for us this morning. It begins this way. It says, to the chief musician, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, an oracle within my heart concerning the transgression of the wicked. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes when he finds out his iniquity and when he hates. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit, He has ceased to be wise and to do good. He devises wickedness on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not abhor evil. Your mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the great mountains. Your judgments are a great deep. O Lord, you preserve man and beast. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. Therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your pleasures. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Oh, continue your loving kindness to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart. Let not the foot of pride come against me, and let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the workers of iniquity have fallen, They have been cast down and are not able to rise. Let's pray once more before we continue. God, thank you for today and for this morning. Thank you, Lord, for the life that you've given us. It's not a life without difficulty, Lord, but it is a life where we might know you and we might receive all that you desire for us. We pray, Lord, that this morning, as we look at your word, as we look at these uh, scriptures that you inspired David to write, Lord, that we would learn more about who you are and more about who you desire uh, we be, Lord more of what you have done for us because of the work of Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord, that we would leave this place with thoughts of how great a God we serve, what a great God you are, and what great things you have done for us. And we do pray, Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who is not a Christian, they've not been born again, we pray, Lord, that your spirit would speak to their hearts, revealing to them their sin and their need for salvation, Lord, but more so revealing that you have provided rescue for them, that they might be forgiven of their sin, cleansed of their guilt, and find eternal life in Jesus Christ. Do work, Lord, heart to heart, person to person, and we pray, Lord, that you would bless each one of us for being here this morning. We love you. And we praise you. In your name we pray, amen. If you're looking for a new hobby, which maybe some of you are, those of you headed towards retirement, or or maybe you're uh, looking for a new hobby, students, when you're coming off of college here or school in the summer, some might suggest people watching to you. I was surprised to find that a simple Google search will bring up quite a variety of articles to teach you how to people watch. You think you know how to people watch, but you don't, apparently, (laughs) not according to Google. One article I looked at gave nine steps with example images of how to properly people watch. 
A different article gave six areas to focus your attention on, on each person. Another, which was titled, Hobbies for Outcasts, People Watching, <laughs> gave a list of the top 15 places for you to go for optimal viewing in your community. And of course, there were some very helpful tips on what to do when you're caught observing other people, which will inevitably happen. Here are two of them, such as simply smile, shrug, and look away, or my preferred method, just look down and don't look up again until they're gone. That's, that's the one I would recommend. Now, you might say that David was a people watcher. That's a conclusion that you come to, particularly if you read his Psalms. There in the first book of Psalms, those are largely David's Psalms. And as you go through them, you can tell that he's been watching people and making notes. He no doubt picked up his skills as a watcher over the countless thousands of hours watching his father's sheep there, carefully keeping his gaze simultaneously on each little lamb, on each little sheep, but also wary of the horizon and on the boundaries for any thieves or predators who might be approaching to grab one of those precious little animals. But you know, David did more than watch. He would watch the sheep. He would watch people as he was around them. But he did more than watch. He also spent a great amount of time considering. And often in his Psalms, he would say things, you know, I meditate on the law of the Lord day and night. And he would meditate on the ways of men and on, on uh, the lives of men. He would reflect on deep truths. He would look within into the heart of men. And he would look down the road as well to consider the end of man. And so we should be people who consider as well. In his ministry on the earth, Jesus would say to people that he was teaching, consider the lilies, consider the ravens, consider kings who go to war. And so we wanna be people who consider the great deep truths of life, consider the end of the road that we are walking on. You know, Proverbs 14 says this, it says, the simple believes every word, but the prudent considers well his steps. And that's certainly the category we want to be in. Here in Psalm 36, we have one of the many considerations of David. It's recorded for us so that not only would he benefit of his thoughts, but that we might as well. Here in this Psalm, we have a very straightforward look at two paths that a person might walk, one which leads to death and one which leads not only to life, but more importantly, a tremendous and abundant life impacted and affected by the power of God. The first thing that David considers in verses one through four is the sinfulness of sin. And then in verses five through nine, he will consider the godliness of God. And those are the two tracks that we will evaluate this morning. And so here beginning in verse one, there are four attributes of sin that we can draw out this morning from David's song. For anyone here who has not been born again, you haven't placed your trust in Jesus Christ, asking him to forgive you of your sins and be saved by his shed blood and his rising from the dead. If that describes you, well, these verses we're about to read are a description of the road you, you are currently walking on. Whether you realize it or not, whether you want to admit it or not, verses one through four, these are the steps that you are taking in life and we will uh, not only see the descriptions, but we'll see in the end what will be your end apart from God. Now for the Christians here today, we shouldn't tune out these first four verses because we remember that within each of us there is still a heart of flesh, there is still an old nature described by these verses. 
And that is a nature that is bent towards transgression. It's bent toward rebellion. And so thus we have within ourselves the same potential for sin. And our goal is to know our enemy within that we might be able to overcome that enemy within the power of God. And so the first attribute found in verse one is that sin lacks the fear of God. Verse one reads like this, an oracle within my heart concerning the transgression of the wicked. There is no fear of God before his eyes. Now these two opening verses of Psalm 36 present a bit of a challenge to translators and linguists as they sort of wrestle through bringing that old Hebrew into our modern English language. It seems that the text here could be interpreted to mean effectively the same thing, but in a slightly different way. It could either mean what we read, an oracle within my heart, David speaking concerning the transgression of the wicked or it may perhaps mean thus saith transgression within the heart of the wicked personifying wickedness and personifying sin and so there's sort of two ways of looking at this you could either be transported into the mind of David as he thinks through these thoughts about what is going on in the life of the wicked or you could be transported actually into the heart of the wicked person and eavesdrop on what sin is saying to them and how it is motivating their heart. Either way, it's clear that we here are being given an explanation of the origin and the overflow and the ultimate outcome of living in sin, being influenced by that natural man, that transgressing man that is in rebellion against God. You know, the Bible here is definitively declaring that we can come to conclusions about right and wrong about how God desires we live and how he desires we not live. There are some gray areas in life. There are some things we have to wrestle through even as students of the Bible. But in our culture today, and predominantly among younger generations, there is a, uh, a very dominant view of relativism, that absolute truth is not only something to be, uh, that is not in popularity, but is something that should be sort of rejected. Hey, if it works for you, great. It might not work for me. Or hey, this is my truth or this is what seems right to me, but I'm not gonna pretend like I really know what's right and wrong. And sadly, that kind of attitude has actually seeped into the church in some ways. Not all the time and not in every regard, but even in the Christian community, there is an idea of, hey, well, let's not draw firm lines and let's not take big stands. Let's just sort of, you know, just let's just love in sort of a, 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 a non-distinct way and let's not make big statements. Let's not be cut and dry about things. Whereas we come to the scriptures and you know the conclusion you come to if you read the scriptures is that we can conclusively know the difference between right and wrong. We can know those things that God says, this is what I desire and this is what pleases me and those things that God says, this is what I do not desire and this is, does not please me. And here is a text like that where David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, through his reflection and consideration, is going to show us some things and he says, these are things that are wicked and these are things that are godly. And let's reflect on those things and let's consider those things and look at the ultimate end of those things so that we can have conclusive information about what the God of heaven desires for us, his people. 
And so uh, we just wanna consider those things and be in the way that the Lord wants us to be. And so the Bible is definitively declaring that we can come to these conclusions. Now, this reference here to the fear of God is not the usual word for the fear of the Lord that we read so often in the Bible. This word is a word that translates as dread. And so David is saying here that the wicked have no dread of God, meaning they have no fear or belief or worry that God is eventually going to judge their lives and decide their eternities. They're not worried at all that one day they will stand before God of very God and have to give an account of what they have done, what they believed, and how they rejected Jesus Christ. And so a question here that arises is, okay, well, who are the wicked since David is describing them? We hear that word and... I don't know about you, but when I hear the word wicked, it sort of conjures up the idea of something way down the spectrum, something, you know, uh, just images of, of, of someone who is deep into evil or perversion or, or sort of intense badness, right? Um, and certainly the word wicked includes those things, but at its basic level, the word wicked simply means those who are ungodly, those who are guilty. If you were to look up this word in a Bible dictionary, you would see the word guilty there. Because these people are ungodly, because they do not choose to own Jesus as king, therefore they are guilty and under the wrath of God. They are still guilty of their sins and that sin has not been removed from them. And the reason given here as to why they are in that position is because they lack the fear of the Lord in their lives. What we need to realize, what every person needs to realize is that God is not only real, but he is almighty. God is the judge of all things. God has all the power and all the dominion. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, whether they wanted to do so in this life or not. It's going to happen. And if we want to know God, which we do, we want to know God and be near him. Well, if we want to know God, we must first fear him. The fear of God is not something that we should avoid or remove from our lives. No, the Bible explains that the fear of the Lord is altogether essential for the Christian. It is a director. It is a protector. It is a producer for us. It brings us closer to God. It does not drive us farther from him. And so it makes sense that if you look into the, the life and a heart that that is uh, uh, where sin is ruling, where sin is given free reign, well, it's going to lack the fear of God because sin and the fear of God are mutually exclusive. But secondly, we learn about sin here is that in place of fear, there is flattery. Verse two, for he flatters himself in his own eyes when he finds out his iniquity and when he hates. Again, this is sort of a hard set of words for scholars to translate. A clearer rendering perhaps is this, in their own eyes, they flatter themselves too much to detect or hate their sin. And so rather than set the fear of God before his eyes, this man makes himself the object of his passion. He sets himself before his own eyes and it says, and he flatters himself meaning that he's not looking for real truth. He's not concerned about whether he's really in the path of right. He's only concerned with his personal thrills, his personal satisfaction, his personal gratification. He set himself as the passion of his vision and the passion of his eyes and how might he build up that self. He's not a man of humility and reflection like God's servant David. 
Instead, he disguises himself and he rationalizes his evil in order to ignore the conviction within his own heart. Notice it says there in the verse, when he finds out his iniquity. You know, God brings mankind face to face with our guilt and our lostness. But if a heart is ruled by sin, well, that heart is gonna lie to itself in order to stay lost and stay out of the loving grip of God. We read the gospels, we see what Jesus, how Jesus came and walked the earth, we see the kind of life that he lived, we see the kind of works that he performed, we see the kind of things that he preached, and we think, how could anyone not follow Jesus as he was there walking the earth? And the Bible explains it very clearly because men loved darkness rather than the light. And a heart ruled by sin is going to flatter itself, meaning it's going to disguise itself, lie to itself, deceive itself, rationalize that sin and the conviction away so that a person can keep themselves as the focal point of their attention and their vision and passion and follow down that wide path which leads to destruction. But here we see a great testimony of what God does on our behalf. You know, God is perfect. He's not responsible for our sin, the sin of mankind. Man is responsible for man's sin. And yet God, instead of just wiping the slate clean and sort of washing his hands of mankind, he says, well, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna reveal that iniquity to you so that you would be saved. It's his desire that no one perish, but that all come to repentance. And so in the picture here that we're given, he, he brings the charge of guilt. He brings that iniquity and sets it before this person. And he says, hey, you are guilty. You are lost. You are in need of salvation. But that heart says uh, it is unwilling to go God's way and instead it lies to itself, it deceives itself, it disguises itself and therefore it hardens and sinks deeper into the depths of sin. Matthew Henry wrote concerning this verse, Satan could not deceive a person if they did not deceive themselves. And earlier this week, I was listening to a Bible study by Pastor Adrian Rogers, and he just had a great sentiment. He was talking about the gospel, and he was talking about God's desire to save sinners and save all of us from our sin. And he says, you know, if a person ends up in hell, it's not because he got there by accident. It's because he climbed over the hill of Calvary in order to get there. Because the Bible declares, creation declares, the moral compass within our own hearts declares our need for salvation. And God comes and he puts the cross of Calvary in our path so that we might know that we are sinners and are in need of salvation and so that we might know how to be saved and rescued. But here we see a heart that is sinking deep into sin, rejecting the intervention of God and the exceeding sinfulness of sin. And so not only does sin lack a fear of God and put flattery in its place, but third in verse three, we see that this man's words and his actions are full of corruption. Verse three, the words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. You know, when people are described in the Bible, there are a lot of analogies given about human beings and about us as individuals. And more often than not, I mean, we are a living organism is how we are presented in the Bible. And so I would say we are trees, not towers, right? In Psalm 1, it says that God wants us to be like trees planted by rivers of living water. And it means that we're not towers in the sense that we're not just built at one point and then fixed in that position forever just as 
as a monument, never changing. No, instead, we are living organisms, body, soul, and spirit. We continue to grow. We continue to develop day in and day out. We continue to make progress in whatever path we are walking. And so the attitudes that we cultivate lead to choices that we will make, which lead to progression in one way or another. If we're fueled by sin, well, we're gonna be propelled in one direction. If we're fueled by godliness, we're gonna go in a very different direction. And here in the psalm, we see a progression in the life of this wicked man. Eyes to heart, heart to words, words to actions, actions eventually defining a life and setting this person on their course. And the man here in Psalm 36, he looked down the path toward God when God you know, got into his way and showed him his iniquity. And for whatever reason, he said, I'm not gonna go your way. I'm gonna continue going the way that I have been going. And so he sets his eyes on that same path, down that same road with himself as the object of his love and, and with, no, with no fear of the Lord. And he starts walking. And at first, I'm sure he would have thought when God said, hey, you're a sinner in need of salvation, he probably thought, hey, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm just living life. And you know, that seems like a pretty big guilt trip you're putting on me, Lord. And he starts walking. But here we see all by verse three, he is deep in the dark. He's not only far from God, but inevitably he's far from wisdom and goodness themselves. He says, man, you're, you're, you're walking not only farther away from heaven, not only farther away from God, but you're actually walking farther and farther away from wisdom and goodness altogether. Sometimes when we're sharing the gospel or sharing our faith, a good point of entry is to say, hey, if you died tonight, what would happen? Do you know where you would go? And oftentimes people say, I think I would go to heaven. Well, why is that? Well, they might say, I'm a good person. I'm a good person, and so I think I'll make it in. And you know what? Maybe by your definition, you are a good person, but unfortunately, by the Bible's definition, none of us are good people, not one of us. The Bible says quite emphatically, there is none righteous, no, not one. And the Bible says that there is no one truly good but God alone. And so apart from God, a person cannot find true goodness. They cannot find wisdom. Instead, they're going to seek deeper into self-deception, deeper into iniquity. They will not ultimately find themselves on the royal route to heaven, but on that awful avenue to hell. And the, the Bible has been proclaiming this for thousands of years and trying to explain this to lost mankind so that they might be saved. Fourth, not only have we seen that sin lacks the fear of God and puts flattery in its place, is full of corruption, but it results in an even more wicked future. Please look at verse four with me. It says, he devises wickedness on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not abhor evil. This is quite a progression from beginning to end here, or we might say it's really an erosion as this heart continues to harden and sink down into sin. And we have to remember that this is the inclination of every human heart apart from the intervention of Jesus Christ in a life. This is the kind of heart that's beating within each one of our chests unless God controls our lives and our minds and our thoughts and our attitudes. This is the kind of progression that our heart would make apart from the Lord. And when we yield to sin, these are the kinds of fruits and this is the kind of future that a person is gonna look forward to. There the verse can be translated to say this, he was near every way that is not good. 
And rather than reject evil, this man becomes a willing participant, even an architect of wicked enterprises. Now, maybe today you're not that interested in the Bible or spiritual things. You're not interested in thinking about eternity or your own mortality. Uh, I, I can understand that. But with David, I would suggest that you take an honest look down the end of the path that you're on and consider the destination you're traveling toward. There are only two destinations at the end of a human life, heaven and hell. God's desire is that everyone be together with him in heaven. He says, I'm not willing that any should perish. I want everyone to come to repentance. And God is not going to send you to hell. You are going to choose to go there by rejecting his free salvation. And so we wanna look down the end of the path, consider the destination you're traveling toward. And for those of us who are Christians here this morning, well, we can take a survey to make sure that we haven't surrendered some cul-de-sac or some precinct of our lives to that transgressor within. No, instead, we're told in the Bible that we need to take that old nature and we need to crucify him. We need to mortify him. We need to subject him by the power of God so that he has no reign in our hearts, no uh, safe haven in our lives. And instead, we should do what David does next, taking about face to consider the godliness of God and how we might not only regard it, but revel in it. We can pull out five attributes in the next set of verses. And I do appreciate how David here gives us more to think about concerning God and his greatness than he does the bleakness of sin. I enjoy that quite a bit. And I also enjoy that as he sat there for a moment and pondered the sinfulness of sin, pondered the uh, origin and the overflow and the outcome of sin, his thoughts were then immediately kicked over to God's mercy. He's gonna spend these next verses talking about God's mercy and his provision. More so than he's just, it doesn't cause him to just think about God's wrath for five verses. He's gonna talk about God's mercy and his faithfulness and his love for these verses. And so first we can see that God is the antidote for evil. Look at verse five. It says, your mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. And so all this consideration of willful sin, and we've seen in the first four verses that this was willful sin. It was a choice to sin. Well, it led to this moment where David suddenly declares the wonderful mercy of God. And this faithful mercy is not on a quota system. It's not an occasional, occasional philanthropy. It is expansive and immeasurable. It's like the sky surrounding the whole earth. David here describes not only how great this mercy is, but more importantly, he describes where it can be found. He says, in heaven, O Lord, is your mercy. The antidote for our sin and our guilt is found by going to the Father of mercies who dwells not in temples nor on the earth but in heaven and who is rich in mercy, Luke says, and shows mercy to those who fear him, Luke 150. And so a person might think this, okay, I understand that I'm a sinner. I guess I understand that I'm not perfect and so therefore I do not uh, deserve to go to heaven, but I will do good things to be made right and I'll earn my way to heaven. I'll work my way to heaven, but you won't find mercy that way. That won't cure the incurable poison of sin in your life. 
Think about it this way. You are at home and you drink some kind of poison. You don't realize that that's not Diet Coke. It's in fact some kind of crazy cleanser that you're drinking. And you drink it down and you call and you start feeling terrible. You call poison control and you say, oh, I just drank this substance. What can I do? And poison control says, you are going to die in two hours unless you drink this antidote. You need to have charcoal put in your stomach. You need to do whatever, right? Drink this as the antidote to the poison within your belly. Would you say to poison control, well, what if I get on a treadmill? I will run so far. I'll sign up for a 5K. I'll sweat it out. Or I'll go to the gym and I'll lift all these weights and I'll get my bench press up. Or I'll do 100 more push-ups than I've ever done before or I'll climb a high mountain, or I'll swim this distance, I'll do all that, and poison control is saying, what are you talking about? None of that's gonna work. You're not even in the same realm. That's not gonna do anything for you. You're gonna be dead before you could even get close to benefiting your body in that kind of a way. All you need to do is drink the antidote, and then you're gonna be good to go. And to such a greater degree, this is what's happening in the human heart. As human beings are being presented with their iniquity and God saying, hey, you are guilty before me. You have a very terminal poison in your life, in your heart. It's called sin. It was, it's been there since you were born and you've been acting in the power of sin since then. I have the antidote right here. And yet, so many multiplied millions of human beings are saying, oh, but I'll run it off. Oh, but I will work it off. Oh, but I will push that off myself. And God says, oh no, that's not where mercy is found. That's not where salvation is found. That's not where the antidote is found for the poison within you. No, mercy cannot be found that way. Forgiveness and salvation cannot be found that way, doing good things, trying to earn your way in. The cure for the poison of sin can only be found by finding mercy in Jesus Christ. Jude, in his letter, said that if we want to find mercy unto eternal life, he said we must go to Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. But the good news is, throughout the Bible and depicted here in beautiful pictures and images for us by David, is that God has enough mercy to to go around. The depths of our depravity do not surpass the depths of God's mercy. Take all of the evil of all of the world compounded throughout all of human history, pile it all together, and God's mercy is still greater, it is still deeper, it is still wider for each and every one of us. And as we're reading here, it's deeper than oceans, it's higher than mountains, it stretches out to anyone and to everyone who will come to him without fail. He's the antidote for sin. And he gives it liberally to those who will come to him. And second, we see the incredible administration of God's godliness. Verse six, your righteousness is like the great mountains. Your judgments are a great deep. Oh Lord, you preserve man and beast. So all this talk about faithfulness and mercy, we might think, okay, well then God just says, hey, everybody's good, you're all covered. I'm merciful, I'm cool that way, and so we'll just pretend this whole sin thing doesn't happen. Oh no, God cannot do that. The fact that God is faithful and merciful does not mean he has no standards. In fact, his standard is perfection, which is a problem for all of us. Because we see here that he is not only a God of faithfulness and mercy, but he is simultaneously a God of righteousness and justice. He is the judge that we all must stand before. Every single one of us will stand before God at the end of our lives, and we must answer. And the question is, what did you do 
with what I offered you in the person of Jesus Christ? Am I gonna stand there and be judged in Christ Jesus? Or am I going to stand there and be judged alone? Every one of us will stand before the judge. Now, as judge, God's desire is to rescue. You know, sometimes we see in the news and we talk about judges legislating from the bench, right? And people get worked up about that sometimes. Well, our God loves from the bench. And from the bench there as judge, he's saying, man, I want to, you are super guilty, 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 guilty but I wanna rescue you. What can we do to rescue you, to cleanse you of your guilt, to pay the price, pay the penalty for your guilt? And so he loves from the bench. He wants to save and preserve, but he cannot sacrifice his righteousness in order to show us mercy. Instead, he has made a way to remove the guilt of any man or any woman throughout all of human history if they will accept his substitute, accept his righteousness. And when we start thinking about this and the way that God has administered reality and administers this world and administers his courtroom, as it were, the greatness of this administration cannot be fathomed. It's higher than any mountain peak. It's deeper than any ocean trench. It's beyond our understanding. Now, third, we see this attribute of godliness, the affection that God has for his people. Verse seven, how precious is your loving kindness, O God. Therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. What a wonderful, wonderful verse. Not only does it illustrate the splendor of God's love, but it shows us how to access that love and all that it includes. David here says that God has multiplied his mercy and made it available to anyone who would believe in the Lord and put their trust in him. When I go to God for refuge, then that loving kindness is for me. He is a God of loving kindness. He is a God of grace. He is a God of mercy. And when I go to him for refuge, he extends that loving kindness to me. And it is the love and mercy of God that gives me life and saves me from death. Albert Barnes once wrote this, it is not in his justice that we can take refuge for we are sinners. But the foundation of all our hope is God's mercy. A holy creature could fly to a holy creator for refuge, but the refuge of a sinner is only God's mercy. And we do not work to merit salvation. There's nothing we could do to earn it. There's no way for any of us to work off even one drop of our debt before a holy God. There's no way any of us could clean off our sin. As we learn what God has revealed about himself in the Bible, we discover though that his active, faithful, merciful, loving kindness is already operating all throughout the world, all around us on our behalf. And all we must do is respond by receiving and trusting in him and putting ourselves under that covering, that we go to him for shelter, that we go for him for covering and for refuge. He is not a cold and spiteful God. He is a God defined by love. And he wants to bring each person here on the earth underneath his mercy. How? Like a mother chin, a mother hen covering her chicks with her wings. We are to respond to God because of what he has already done. He doesn't respond to us because we try to make ourselves more appealing. Not at all. The Bible says that we love him because he first loved us and we respond to what he has done. But there is a requirement here. It says that we are to put our trust 
in the Lord. That we put our trust under the shadow of his wings. That's an action word. That's a choice word. That we take something of ours and place it somewhere. That we put our trust into Jesus Christ. It's a word that demands a choice and a decision. Will we come under the Lord not only for his shelter, but for his administration of our lives? Yes, he's like a mother hen, but he is also king. And will we submit to him as king and own him as king and go God's way? Will we recognize him as father, acknowledge Jesus as our sovereign and say, okay, not only can you have my guilt that you're going to take off of my shoulders, but you are going to have my life. You're going to have my steps. I'm now gonna go the way you want me to go. I'm gonna do what you asked me to do. You're gonna be my God and I will be your child. Now, fourth, we've seen God as the antidote for evil. We've seen his administration and his affection for his people. And now we see the abundance that godliness brings. Verse eight, they are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house and you give them drink from the river of your pleasures. You know, the idea out there that the Christian life is defined by leanness or disappointment or dryness, it's not from the Bible, it's from the devil. It's the same lie he told Adam and Eve back in the garden. Oh, if you go God's way, you are gonna miss out. God is withholding from you. God is trying to hold you back. He's malnourishing you spiritually. He doesn't want as, you know, the good things that I want for you. He just wants to push you down under his thumb. It's the same lie. And that's the lie out there in the culture that as a Christian, we're gonna miss out. As a Christian, we're gonna have less than the person next to us. But that's not at all what godliness is presented as in the Bible. Godliness is presented here as a life of great satisfaction and spiritual pleasures. Life more abundantly, Jesus would call it. It's not just about being cleansed from guilt. It's also about being contented, being filled up with these incredible treasures that only heaven can supply. We remember that God is not only judge in the Bible, but he is sovereign over a kingdom and he is the ruler of a great house. And as a ruler and sovereign, he invites everyone to come to his table, to be a part of his kingdom, to enjoy the delights of a godly life. The Bible says like God wants for us, our lives to be a continual feast with him. And he says, go out into the highways and byways, go out into the streets, just get everybody and bring them in to be a part of the feast of my house. And we are to find our filling and our satisfaction in the Lord and in his house and in his living water. And the amazing thing is that not only does God grant us access to this incredible fountain, which would be far beyond what any of us could ever hope for, but as his people, he then makes us channels of his living water as well. Jesus said in John 7, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And so God's plan for his people, for a Christian, is to fill us so full that we overflow with satisfaction and spiritual pleasure, not just a little bit, not just a dribble here and there, but to overflow us so much that enough is coming out of us that others might also be filled around us, that they could sort of cozy up to our lives and they too are filled with these spiritual blessings. And as human beings, we spend so much time looking for satisfaction from human sources, looking for human gratifications, while all the while the Lord has a limitless reservoir of heavenly contentment that he's ready to connect to our hearts. That he's already got the hookups right there, right to our lives. And he says, hey, do you wanna hook up here? I've already laid the groundwork. I've already laid the infrastructure. I am ready to hook this up into your life right now. 
Now, fifth, we learn this about God. He is the author of life and truth. Verse nine, for with you is the foundation, excuse me, is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. You know, people don't seem to care much anymore about the meaning of life, but they should. The meaning of life is to discover God and to receive what he has for us. He is the source and the spring for everything eternal. He is the source and the author of light. It says, in your light, we see light. I love that. To gain true understanding and real wisdom, we've got to go to the same place where we find mercy and refuge and satisfaction. We find all of these things all in the same place. We find it in the Lord. We find it in Jesus Christ. Christ. He not only shines light into our past to clean out the sin, he not only shines light into our future to give us a glorious hope in heaven, but he shines light into our present that we might know and understand more and more as we walk with him. It says that he gives us light and then he gives us more light and as we walk with him, he gives us more light and more light and more life and more fountain and more living water. That's God's desire for us. Now here's a moment of application for us sort of as a group of Christians. The church at large, we often fall victim to thinking that, okay, we need to sort of trick God into doing some things for us. We need to sort of conjure his presence in our midst or, or his fruit in our lives or in our group here. And so if we do this program, then we'll see God. Or if we do this method or this amount or whatever, and then we'll discover what God has hidden. But you know what? In the Bible, God is not presented as hidden. He's never presented as hidden. He is presented as revealed. And if we want more of him as individuals or as a group, we're welcome to go to the source any time. You know, let's drink in more of what he has already supplied. He says, here's my word so that you might know me. Here's my spirit so that you might communicate with me. Here's access to me in prayer. Here's gifts. Here's opportunities. Here's structure so that you guys can work together, building in one another's lives in the church. All of these things that God has supplied. And, and he says, come to the source and receive that supply. Let's drink in what he has already brought to us. You know, later today, if you're getting ready for lunch and you're, you're thirsty and you find yourself thinking, man, I'm thirsty, I need a drink. The answer isn't to just set out a bunch of empty cups on the table and think, I hope one of these fills up. If I set out a bunch of cups in a certain order, in a certain fervency, then one of these cups is bound to fill up. That's never what we would do on a practical level, and yet it feels like that's what we do so often on a spiritual level. When all the while, we know that if we're thirsty, the answer is to go to the faucet and turn on the cup, turn it on, fill our cup up, and then drink, because the supply is already there. Our city has gone to quite a bit of work to get that water right where you are. It's really gross water, but it's right there. <laughs> you just kick it on, and it's there. Now let's apply that to the spiritual life where the Lord says, I've done all of this for you. I've done this work for you. I've brought it to you. I've given you the church. I've given you my word. I've given you prayer. I've given you the Holy Spirit. I've put all of this in place so that you might not think that I'm hidden, but so that you might be attached to the source of everlasting life and have life more abundantly. And so we wanna go to the source. With you, David says, is the fountain and the light. If we go to the Lord, we will find ourselves at the fountain in the light. The psalm closes as so many psalms do with a petition to God. 
sort of bringing everything full circle. He says in verse 10, oh, continue your loving kindness to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart. Let not the foot of pride come against me and let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the workers of iniquity have fallen. They have been cast down and are not able to rise. And so knowing what we now know about the sinfulness of sin and the godliness of God, the choice becomes very clear. We must trust in the Lord and attach ourselves to him, not only because of the benefits of being his people, but because of the inevitable downfall for those who refuse to be saved. The Bible says that there's a way that seems right to a man, but in its end, it is the way of death. And so if we do not allow God to rescue us, not only will we be able, unable to rise out of our slide into sin, but we'll ultimately be unable to rise to everlasting life. But for those who know him and love him and obey him, God will stretch out his loving kindness to them, not just for the hope of heaven, but also as a shield and a provider in this life as David talks about here. And that is something that we require as Christians because being on God's side, it's gonna put us at odds with the wicked world we live in. Sin is going down. It was defeated by Jesus on the cross, but sin goes down swinging and it wants to take anyone within reach with it. Here in verse 11, we see the foot of pride, the hand of the wicked, and it puts a picture of pursuit in our minds as if David is being hunted down as he so often was in his life. And we rightly recognize the Christian life as a race like Paul Paul talked about the Christian life is a race, but so often it's also a chase, right? I mean, as we pursue God, we too are pursued by enemies within and without. But here we remember that in Christ, we not only find mercy, but we find might as well. He is mighty to save. He is mighty to keep us secure in his house and by his river and on his path. As we shelter under the loving coverage of Jesus Christ, his mercy and the godliness that he has brought to us takes action within us and around us that we might experience the supernatural life that only God can give. It is a life that lifts the fallen, a life that raises up the people of God that we might live on a higher plane, thinking with the mind of Christ, speaking with the words of Christ, able to do things inexplicable, full of glory. That's what the Bible wants for us. That's what God wants for us. And so David would have each of us consider the end of these two paths, the sinfulness of sin, the godliness of God. And he would have us consider the potential within each one of our hearts to sink into the darkness of sin or to rise in the gracious glory of God made possible for us by the work of Jesus Christ, found in no other place other than the mercy of heaven, the work of Jesus, the person of our Messiah. He died on the cross and rose again that we might receive that mercy and all that's included with it. And so the question this morning for each of us, have you taken refuge? Are you taking refuge? Are you growing in godliness? Are you progressing down the path of godliness? That's what God wants for each of us. We can have it and all that comes with it as we consider what Christ has done, as we consider our steps, as we know God and trust him, and as we are filled with his matchless mercy. Let's pray.